Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. We'd like to read and hear about famous people. And when it comes to taxes, we really like to talk and read about famous people. It feels like when they get into trouble and it's public, it's almost like you're a voyeur, right? You get to look at and experience kind of the flip side, I think it is, of being famous. And um, a lot of those issues, though, that entertainers and sports figures run into are the same kinds of issues that ordinary everyday taxpayers experience. But there are some differences and uh, not just in terms of dollars, but in terms of being high profile. So I asked Greg Zabilet to talk to us about what it means to represent um, entertainers and sports figures. Greg holds a JD and an MBA from Loyola University in Chicago, and he's worked for and with clients ranging from individuals to Fortune 500 companies. Greg is currently serving his second term on the Beverly Hills Bar Association Board of Governors and has chaired the Beverly Hills Bar and Los Angeles County Bar Association's Taxation Section, the Corporate and Pass-Through Subcommittee of the State Bar of California, and the Los Angeles County Bar State and Local Tax Subcommittee. So first of all, Greg, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. No problem. And I think one of the things that I was kind of struck by, because, you know, I write about a lot of folks who uh, run into tax trouble, and a lot of that is a lack of planning. And again, it's really easy, I think, sometimes for folks to see a headline and point a finger and say, you know, why didn't that person pay their taxes? Because it's in this very public way, but they had to get there first. So I was hoping you could maybe talk to us a little bit to start about how did clients find you and what are their concerns usually walking in the door? Because I suspect folks won't anticipate that they're similar to some of the kinds of things that normal taxpayers face. I work full-time at a firm called Singerberg Zimmer in Encino, and it's a business management firm. And so um, for people who are unfamiliar with business managers, we plan your life for you. Well, we don't plan your life for you. We manage your financial life for you. So we pay bills. We help people find homes. We help them find cars. We help them with their corporate information and bookkeeping. Pretty much all the things that the rest of us do day to day and wish we had somebody else to do. That's what we do. And we, you know, we do it because they can afford to pay us to do it. Obviously we don't do it for free. (laughs) Right. Um, it is a very small community. There are a number of large firms. We are about 60 people, so we're, we're pretty good sized. But there are other firms like Nigro Carlin or Gelfand or any other bunch of them, although there's been a lot of consolidation in the industry too. And uh, so, you know, there's a lot of trading back and forth. And uh, in fact, we have a client now that one of our managers worked on three, two jobs ago. They were at her firm two jobs ago and she left, they left and and both of them wound up at Singer Burke. And, you know, so we just said, well, you, you did the work on this initially. So you're, it's, it's yours again, if you want it. So it's uh, very much a referral based business. Mm -hmm. Nigro Carlin, you can find a website for, 
I think Gelfand has a rudimentary web, website. Who originally started at has absolutely no web presence. So it's it's very uh, interesting because you'll hear people say, you need a website. It's like, uh, no, no, they don't. They, it's all word of mouth. 99.9% is referrals from agents, from lawyers, from other people, professionals. That's really interesting because I, I do think most people would assume that you would uh, find that via Google, but I guess it's, do you Google how do I find an attorney to help me find a house, right? So, so of course, it's going to be the kind of conversation that you would have with other folks in the same industry. Yeah. And, and Singer Burke has a website, so you can always go look up Singer Burke. But for the most part, most of our clients are referral. About 85% of them are in the entertainment industry in one way, shape, or form. We have a few actors. We have a lot of directors and screenwriters and what's known as behind the camera people actors are always called in front of the camera people um so we have a lot of behind the camera my old firm was front of camera and uh uh, but we also have uh lawyers we have doctors you know we have uh studio executives and other industry executives people basically high net worth people so they're all making some amount of money um and and as business management firms go we are more of a hybrid. We're an accounting firm that does business management. So we will have clients for whom we only do their taxes. Okay. Uh, my old firm would not uh, do that. That was not their policy. And in fact, they would not take on a client who was making less than a million a year unless they thought they could make over a million a year. And then you were kind of on a clock. Right. And um, if you didn't make a million a year within a certain time frame, they would drop you. And they are, they are the old school business management firm, which is 5%. So like lawyers uh, who take 5 to 10% and managers who take 10 to 15% and agents who take 10 to 15%, they would take a percentage of the gross, which means in the early years when you're not making anything, they're probably losing money on you, which is why they, they give you a clock because they want to turn a profit on you. Right. So, uh, you know, if you're not making them money, uh, unless you're related to somebody or, you know, you're you've got some reason to keep you around, they'll gently push you out the door. And so actually, I found that fascinating on the compensation side, because I think a lot of folks don't realize the amount of expenses and the number of advisors that a lot of high net, high net worth folks need, not only to, you know, kind of keep doing the things that they're doing. So maybe they're traveling a lot because they're directing or whatever, and they need somebody to hold down the fort. But um, it's, it's really interesting to me when I write stories and I talk to folks and they'll say, well, what do you mean they didn't have enough money to you know, pay their bills? They made a million dollars. But when you start talking about all of the folks, not even including IRS, but all of the folks who want a piece of that million dollars before it gets to the client or to the taxpayer, um, it can be significant. Yeah, I once ran numbers for somebody. Uh, I think it was actually a revenue agent. And said, you know, if so-and-so made a million bucks, by the time they pay this person, that person, the other person in taxes, that million dollars, by the time it gets to their bank account, is 300000 bucks. Right. Which most people are not going to complain about a $300,000 check. But when you start thinking that that check started out as a million bucks. And there's a lifestyle component. I mean, I, I believe it was, I was trying to think, was it TLC? There was a, a, a band that did one of those, they did one of those exposés on finances. And they were saying that even though they were making a lot of money, 
they actually were losing a lot of money because of the expenses to keep up with their lifestyle, which was part of their brand. Yeah, you know, it's here in LA, um, and I, I'm, I actually happen to be in Burbank at the moment, so we have two studios here, Warner Brothers and Disney. You get a lot of ego and a lot of people who feel that they need to keep up with the Joneses because if they don't, they're going to get left behind. Right. And, um, and we joke about what we call the LA conversation, which is, you know, I'm, I'm not really looking at you while I'm talking to you. I'm kind of looking over your shoulder to see if there's somebody to, uh, I need to talk to because they're more important than you are. Oh, uh, which is a conversation inc- on the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly incredibly uh annoying mm-hmm. because you feel like you're just a you know you're not important enough for this person to talk to you so they there's always people angling for their next thing which you know you think about it is somewhat understandable especially for younger people because they're not getting 15 million dollar contracts they're getting you know fifteen thousand dollar contracts and those contracts come intermittently so you don't know when your next one is going to be and actually on one end of the scale, it it's, makes sense. It's smart because so many self-employed people, business, whether their business is accounting or law or whatever, they get very wrapped up in what they're doing right now. And they pump out the work and then they get done and they go, oh, I don't have anything because they didn't do any marketing while they were working. They were working. Right. You always have to be marketing no matter what you're doing because whenever you know, that sale or that transaction is complete, you need the next transaction. And so from that standpoint, it it makes sense. So you're looking for the next transaction because you may not be working on anything. And in this industry, you could go there. There are people who have literally gone three, four, five years between major projects. And if they don't manage their money well, they're starving, literally starving. I think that people can relate to that in all kinds of jobs, especially in an economy that's very heavily driven by the gig economy. Because like one of the things you mentioned, not only going between gigs, like there being a time difference, but, you know, maybe not knowing when the money's coming in, because some of the kinds of income that are associated with high net worth individuals are not regular payouts. They are payouts when something hits or when you know, if you're a YouTuber or a TikToker, you know, when the, when the, the advertising comes in or, you know, these, and they may not be the same, even if you've kind of gotten used to the idea that you get paid every two to three months, you know, one month, it could be 10,000 next month, it could be 150,000. And then the next month you might be back down to two. So how, do, how do you counsel people about planning for that kind of instability? It's a good question. And it's, somewhat experience. Um, you know, people have to live things. A lot of times you, you look at life and you see that somebody can't relate to somebody else's problem until they incur that problem themselves and all of a sudden they get it. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes it's they've been there and they've gotten burned and they, they realize they have to do better. Right. But some people are able to envision that they're, they're not going to get everything you know, they're not going to have a constant steady stream of income and that they need to plan for it. And a lot of that is upbringing. I've noticed that our clients who really have a good grasp on what's going on. And, and by the way, being in business management, we have some clients who are very good at at keeping a handle on their financial affairs. And at, at my my old firm, one of our clients was a very famous voiceover artist who would 
uh, go over all of their checks weekly and, and was very hands-on and knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. And we have other clients who, we again, at my old firm, we had a client send us back his tax return saying, please don't send this to us. And so at that time- For review or just general? Or, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So at that time, I knew Karen, I still know Karen Hawkins, but Karen Hawkins at that time was the head of the IRS's uh, Office of Professional Responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I happened to be in DC and she and I happened to be at an event together. And I said to her, listen, Karen, this happens. They just have no idea what's going on. And they just don't realize that they're supposed to have a copy of this. So we've started just having them sign something that says, I understand I can get a copy of my returning anytime I want, but I don't want one right now. And uh, I said, obviously it doesn't say that literally, but that's the gist. (laughs) Right. And, uh, and I said, and she looked at me and she said, well, you can't make them, you know, take it. At least you've shown you, you've offered it to them. So that's fine. Right. I'm like, good. Cause I didn't want to get in trouble with you guys because I didn't give them their copy. I tried to, they didn't want it. And she just shook her head and, you know, she was bemused by the fact that somebody wouldn't want it, but sure. you know, they, they did not have any real financial education either from their parents or their school or whatever. And so they don't understand the importance of it and where that existed in their youth, where they had a parent sit down and say, here's how you manage money, or where they had a teacher to sit down and say, here's how you manage money. They get it. And those people are really easy to deal with because they understand that you can talk about planning and they'll get it. So I think the most important thing any parent can do is have a money conversation with their kid. I think a lot of, but a lot of these folks, especially now, with again, YouTube, TikTok, that kind of thing. And, and even athletes to, um, to a certain extent, the fame doesn't come in increments. It kind of sneaks no. up on you when you're young. So when you're 18 or 19 and you're signing a contract with the NBA or you're signing a long-term contract with a sponsor for TikTok or something, that's not something you necessarily saw coming to think about planning for it. And, and the, I guess the distinction that I'm making is, you know, I, I work with high net worth individuals as well, but a lot of mine are professionals. So the, they, they're, you know, they spent a lot of time being poor in graduate school. They knew that there were going to be, you know, not everybody gets paid good money right out of graduate school. And they had time to kind of focus on how things might change. Whereas you have somebody who you know, all of a sudden gets a contract that I think everybody dreams of. So I'm not saying that it was out of the blue, right? Because, you know, they've been working for it. And I'm not implying that at all. But when it comes, it's still, there's a big difference between having a parent who was paying everything for you and now having $10 million a year. So I think it's it's hard to, to emphasize to folks the need to do financial literacy at a young age, because people just don't always think that way. Right. And, you know, I, I had occasion to meet a, a very, very well-known celebrity uh, last year. He's a client of our firm and, and, uh, and the managing partner and I had a planning meeting with him and, and the managing partner, Matthew Perks, an awesome guy. He's great to work for. Uh, I think you may have seen my post on Facebook, a little thing they sent to all of the staff, personalized cookies, which I thought was amazing. Yeah. You know, we get to this meeting and he introduces me and he says, uh, I'm just going to let Greg run this which my old firm would never have done. I would just sat back there because the tax people were not to be talked to. Mm-hmm. But this firm, they, they let you, you know, shine and give you the opportunity. And, you know, so there is that moment where I'm talking to this well-known person who I've seen for years. And, 
And uh, now I have to be a business person that I'm like, uh, okay, let's talk about this. So, you know, I get that kind of feeling of, oh my God, I've gotten here. What do I do? And, you know, seeing people that I've seen on TV for years and all of a sudden I'm sitting across the table from them, they want to talk to me. It's kind of this mind blowing, uh, you know, pinch me moment. And in that moment, you can sometimes kind of lose focus. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, when they get there and they get that big contract, um, all of a sudden it's a life-changing contract. It makes everything very different and you lose focus on the fact that it's a three-year contract, you know, especially for a sports athlete, right? It's like a three-year or five-year contract and you're 20. Well, you know, you may live to be 85. That's 65 more years. This is a five-year contract and it can go and it does go. And, you know, we talk about how do people get in trouble? They get in trouble because they also anticipate things that don't happen. My old firm, we had a client who anticipated a large royalty payout from a film they were working on. And so they went and made a few purchases. They probably should have waited until they actually got the large payment because the large payment didn't come. And all of a sudden, they had all kinds of debt that they thought they would be paying off with this payment that was not going to be paid off with the payment. The payment was literally one-tenth of what they thought it would be. And um, because they they were working on a film that turned out to be not as successful as I thought it would be. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, they've got these these other debts that they suddenly owe everybody and their brother. Plus, they made a good chunk of money that year, and they didn't pay it in because, hey, I'll just pay it out of my payout. No. (laughs) You know? I had to negotiate an installment plan with the IRS. And, and even that, that person who was very nice, who was financially clueless and didn't understand the gravity of their situation, and they, they called me one day and they said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm at the, the really expensive car dealer and I'm looking at buying a car for my spouse. And for a moment, I lost my professional demeanor because I had literally just hung up with the IRS telling them that they had no money. This person had no money because mm-hmm. they had no money. And the first words out of my mouth was, with what effing money? (laughs) Right. And there was silence at the other end of the phone and very long pause. And I realized what I just said went, oh, crap. (laughs) I'm going to hear about that from the partners. And uh, uh, the response was, yeah, maybe I shouldn't buy it right now. And I'm like, you think? <laughs> well, at least you got that response though, because I, you know, I have been in situations where that's not the response, not necessarily from, you know, the entertainment industry, but I've had clients similarly. I think you and I have actually maybe uh, discussed this story over a, a, a Zoom happy hour before, but I had a client who was in the middle of an audit and we had claimed that there was no cash and the audit was at our office and Mm-hmm. big picture windows. It was in when we were still in Philly, big picture windows. And I saw the client drive up in a new Lexus. I was literally looking, I'm like, oh my gosh, like why? We just told the IRS that you could barely pay your living expenses. And and the his yeah. his very flip answer was, well, I leased it. I'm like, that, that's not an answer. <laughs> they don't understand the optics and they don't understand that that's still you own the car. Right, right. Yeah, uh, we have we have clients now even who are, and the other thing is, especially with athletes, I think this kind of segues into that. That the other thing is that you have other people in your life, whether it is 
immediate family, you know, spouse, children, or extended family, or friends, neighbors, whatever, who look at you as the lottery winner. Source of support. Absolutely. Right. And, and so all of a sudden you're the one that's buying lunch and buying dinner. And, um, occasionally you, we do run across those clients who are victim to that. They are, they are paying for things. We have one client who pays for their, and this is not unusual, pays for their uh, adult child's life, basically everything. And this particular adult child is, I want to say she's in her late twenties, early thirties. She's single. And I looked at the account manager and I said, what guy would want to date her? You know, because the expectations on you would be incredibly high that you'd be paying for their lifestyle, which is a pretty expensive lifestyle because the parents have been paying for it. I have, you can say what you will about Bruce Willis and, and Demi Moore. One of the things I admire about them is that they made Rumor and Scout go out and apply for jobs Mm -hmm. and go on interviews at retail stores. And even, yes, they have a famous name. Yes, they're going to get the job because everybody goes gaga and they want to be able to say they have Bruce Willis's kid working for them. I mean, that's unfortunate because they're never going to have the experience of being told no. Mm -hmm. At least they understand the experience of having to go look for a job. Well, and that's true. That's true with a lot of second generation wealth, even if it's not in Hollywood. I mean, we, you know, we see some of these same issues where you do have children who maybe are inheriting the family business, for example, and they've always sort of assumed that everything would be taken care of. So they aren't doing the planning and they aren't doing the early compliance to, uh, to make sure that they stay, you know, where they need to be. And, and I believe, and I can't remember who did the study. I want to say it was like Sotheby's, but someone did a study of second generation wealth, how, mm. you know, second generation wealth from a statistical point of view doesn't perform nearly as high as first generation. And, and I think that's why you hear people like Bill Gates say that they don't want to leave their children a legacy because they want their kids to build something on their own. Yeah, I heard a saying, first generation makes it, second generation spends it, third generation starts over. Oh, I've not heard that. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, you know, this, this goes back to education, right? Because at my old firm, we had a very well-known celebrity whose children are in the industry as well. And, um, and their children are doing fine because their children are, are actually financially astute because their, their parents are financially astute and they're, they taught them well. Mm-hmm. And we've had other cases of, of, you know, the kids just do whatever and they bleed mom and dad dry. And, and you sit there with the parents and you get, you got to cut them off. You got to come off. It's a hard, hard lesson. <laughs> he even said, you know what? I'm not from LA. I'm from Chicago. And I don't have a problem saying you're cut off. So if you would like me to make that phone call, I'm happy to be a bad guy. Nobody's ever taken me up on that yet, but um, it's, you know, I, I just throw that out there because sometimes people need to hear that. But the other problem that uh, we deal with, and I think every single tax professional is going to sit there and nod their head at this, is what one of my old friends back in the Chicago days used to call street law. And, uh, and you know, uh, uh, I had a client early on when I was working very my very first tax job, and I prepared this guy's return. And he looks at me and he goes, um, Hey, uh, this is great and all, but uh, John over there, he works on the line with me and he got 1500 back and uh, you're telling me I'm only getting 500 back. Uh, 
know, we do the same job there. How come uh, he's getting more money back? I think you must have done something wrong there, buddy. <laughs> right. And well, what's the, tell me, let's see. Okay. Well, you're married and you guys rent an apartment on the, you know, the, the West side of uh, Cicero. What, what about John? Uh, John, he's married. He's got five kids. He's got a house down there in the Riverside. And, uh, you know, he's got this and that. Okay. You and John are, don't have identical lives. He has a lot more write-offs. <laughs> this is why he's getting more money back. You know, it's like, oh my God. Right. And that, or, or, you know, uh, yeah, you know, I, uh, I got told, uh, that I don't have to pay tax on this money, you know, and, uh, it, because, uh, I'm not an employee, I'm a gig worker or whatever, or I, I got money in the settlement and it's not taxable, which is absolutely not true. It's, it's very possible. That's probably taxable, you know, so you have to go with what somebody told them sometime or they heard. And I have heard people on TV shows give the absolute wrong advice. It's like, Wait, wait, that's totally wrong. What do you mean? That's not correct at all. Oh, I'm impossible to sit next to during any kind of movie or TV show involving any kind of legal tax advice. Yeah, no. Yeah. My, my kids will actually ask me to leave because I will explain. I'll start explaining in the middle of the show why it's wrong. Well, I, my and Amy, my my better half, is has spent many a year as a litigator. So Watching legal shows with her is even more fun. Oh, sure. They're going to get a $50,000 fence. Where's the bill for that? Where's the bill for that? Uh, you know, what, I mean, what, do you, what do you mean they walk in at nine o'clock and get a trial at 9.05? Don't they know that, that nine o'clock is 2020 and 9.50 is uh, 2027? <laughs> Where's the discovery? As you're saying this, it actually makes me wonder, and there may be nothing to this. It's just literally where my mind went when you were talking. I wonder if working in a more creative industry where people take a lot of license, if it leads necessarily to some of these misunderstandings about the way that taxes work. Because, you know, it, you, you always, we, we've been watching uh, Schitt's Creek on Netflix lately. And uh, for, for my mother, in case she's listening, mom, it's Schitt's Creek's S-C-H-I-T-T apostrophe S. But one of the things, you know, Maura, the, the, the actress in the show, she often pulls on her soap opera days, you know, when she's uh, trying to, to find her way out of certain situations. And, and that's on some level, I, you know, she knows this fiction, but on some level, it's also what she knows, right? Because this is what you do all of the time. And, and I do wonder if, you know, if, if, if you've always been in a world where things resolve quickly, if they resolve in 30 minutes and all you have to do is call the lawyer, you know, maybe that does somehow lead to um, unrealistic expectations. And I'm not suggesting that anyone believes that life is a television show. I'm just wondering if you, because, you know, I've noticed differences in industries and the way people look at things just in my own practice, just because, you know, software people think about things and the way that information flows much more differently yes. than, than, you know, my friends yes. who are professors. So I, I wonder if that contributes like to a, a, a different set of expectations. Not only in the industry, but all around. One of my favorite shows that only lasted a season was um, a show called The Grinder with Rob Lowe. I love that show so much. And, yes. And uh, uh, was it Natalie Morales, who people probably remember better as as Tom Haverford's girlfriend on Parks and Recreation. And Fred Savage. Um, and, and the, yes, and Fred Savage. And so Natalie Morales and Fred Savage were actual lawyers. Rob Lowe was Fred Savage's brother who played a lawyer on a TV show and the TV show got canceled. So he came home and he started working in his brother's law firm. And that was the, the whole premise of the show. 
uh, of this guy who thought he who at, at was an actor playing a lawyer trying to work in a real law firm with real lawyers and you know put in this this absolutely hideous advice and William Devane was their father and he was the senior partner of the firm but he was kind of retired and mm-hmm. and he would sit there and validate all of this and everybody would think that Rob Lowe was a genius and Fred Savage was just banging his head on the table going <laughs> you know this just doesn't work and and one of my favorite scenes, which I think really kind of sums this whole issue up, is there's a scene where Natalie Morales is making photocopies and just kind of milling about the office doing stuff. And Rob Lowe, who is chasing after her, and she she won't give him the time of day, he says, uh, he says to her, so what are you doing? And she looks at him and so in, in a phrase every lawyer would agree with and love, she goes, I'm doing discovery, the bane of my existence which every lawyer knows is 95% of any case is discovery. It is where all the real work gets done. And Rob Lowe, I think if I recall the scene correctly, he's like sipping coffee and he takes a sip of coffee and goes, oh, we do a montage over that. (laughs) (laughs) And, And Amy and I were rolling on the floor laughing because Every legal show really ignores discovery, which is depositions, it's motion practice, it's it's not exciting, it's not sexy, it doesn't really get drama going. And it's so by definition, the legal show, the legal procedurals aren't going to really show it mm-hmm. unless there's something compelling, right? Like the the movie The Practice, I think they have a deposition in that movie or not the poet was the it's uh, one of the ones, one of the Grisham novels they made in a movie with Susan Sarandon on it. It's not the practice. Oh, I mean, um, yeah, but anyway, I what you're talking about. Yeah, they have a deposition scene in there. And so there are some times where depositions do pop into TV shows and movies, but generally they don't really show them. It's, you go from the guy coming in saying, here's my problem to the trial scene. Right. And the problem with that, and it's the same problem that you run into, especially in tax, because nobody does tax movies, right? That's just not sexy <laughs> enough. I don't understand it. I think it's totally sexy. I think I would star as a real tax hero. (laughs) And, uh, but, um, you know, people, they, they get a misperception of what litigation is and people get a misperception of what taxes too. Mm -hmm. And they don't, you know, um, they don't really get it. And um, I just was reading about a film. Oh gosh, I wish I could remember the there were the actress uh it was based on on historical fact but they made some changes oh i think it was elizabeth that's what it was it was the the elizabeth films with kate blanchett okay. where there was a lot of people complaining about what they did or whatever and uh saying that you know people were like following this as gospel and kate blanchett was just aghast saying this is entertainment the fact that you're taking this as historical fact is just appalling right but the problem is that people do. Oh, sure. And so a lot of what we have to deal with, too, is misinformation, sometimes from the entertainment industry, because they're trying to create a dramatic story and they, uh, they, they skip over things. They don't present things. They misrepresent things because it's not good drama when you present it, how it happens in real life. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody watches a movie to see the main character go to the grocery store. <laughs> If the main character is going into the bathroom, something is going to happen in the bathroom, right? right? I mean, you know, Superman never stops to say, I've got to use the bathroom. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's it's, it's all supposed to be the fancy parts, right? Yeah. Right, right. And that's the problem that no matter what level of income 
and I've had clients all the way from, you know, like I said, you know, guys working on the line at the factory all the way up to eight figure income earners. And, and a lot of them, um, you know, it's the same problem we deal with no matter where they are in that spectrum is they don't understand the day-to-day stuff because nobody really talks about it because it's not sexy. It's not interesting. And when you're really busy in life, yeah, and that's what you don't have time I tried to, to kind of emphasize in my writing is a lot of, you know, a lot of getting, getting there, getting to the resolution. A lot of it is understanding what's going on. And, and I do think that the more people are educated and the more that they understand about the way that the tax laws work, about the way that the IRS works, um, you know, it, it does change ex- expectations. And actually, sort of the flip side of one of the things we were talking about, um, you know, I, I mentioned at the top of the program that, you know, we like to read and hear about famous people. The IRS is very well aware of this. Um, and so that's why we sometimes see these high profile cases make the news because they're also painting a picture and, and a, kind of a cautionary tale. And it's, it's interesting because I've seen that on the flip side at the, at the ordinary taxpayer stage where they will see something like the Judiches and the Real Housewives um, and they'll see prison sentences and the automatic uh, conclusion is if, you know, if, if something goes wrong on an audit, I go to jail, right? So the IRS kind of does, they, they play it both ways a little bit in that respect. And, and I know that the, um, and they're, they're very open about the fact that, you know, b- being, you know, these high profile cases are, that's gold for them because it is, it's a lot of eyeballs. It's showing that they're not afraid to go after the actor or the billionaire or whoever it might be. And it does send a message to ordinary taxpayers. So there's, you know, it's funny, there, there's kind of both sides of that coin, the unrealistic expectations by the taxpayer uh, in terms of how quickly something can get resolved in the kind of benefit that they can get from it. But also this, this penalty phase, it can be really daunting because I do have folks who will email me, I don't want to go to jail. Yesterday, I was on the phone with the IRS and I was calling about uh, client and you know they um you have to send them over a power of attorney sometimes mm-hmm. if it's not already on file and so i i was uh, i had sent it over and i was waiting for the agent to get it so i usually i uh, usually just kind of chat them up a bit yeah. and uh and so we're talking and i said well how long have you been with the service and uh because we were talking about this very issue of people you know and what they expect or think will happen and uh, she said, well, you know, I've been with the service for a total of about 25, 26 years. And I said, okay, so you were around because I was around back then. You were around when the IRS would send letters to senior citizens saying you don't need to file anymore because that's all they were getting was social security and, you know, not enough dividends to really cross the threshold of, of filing requirements. So they would send a letter and they would say, you know, thank you, Mrs. Smith. You've been below the filing requirements for the last X number of years. You, we determined you no longer need to file a tax return. And so we would get these wonderfully lovely little old ladies coming in, freaking out and saying, the IRS is coming after me. And it's like, no, the IRS is telling you to stop sending them tax returns. Because it, w- it was back then, it was all paper, right? They were only beginning to transition to electronic filing. And they didn't want to process the paper. So it's just, tell, you know, you don't have to file anymore. Right. And, you know, we'd spend 15, 20 minutes explaining to this very frick-lumped person that it's okay, they're not coming after you. You know, so uh, it, it, was, it was quite funny, and the agent and I both laughed about that. She goes, oh, yeah, I remember those two. Now, on the flip side of that, 
uh, I had a client, and there are things called residency audits. States do do them. California does them, but not nearly as aggressive as New York. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you live in New York and you maintain a residence in New York, and you file as a New York resident, and then you file it next year as a non-resident, it will take longer for me to explain all of this to you than it will take for New York to start sending you residency audit paperwork. Right. And for folks who aren't uh, familiar with it, what, what Greg is referring to is when you may have a lower, typically it's lower, a lower tax rate in another state and you decide that that is your home um, that year. And it may be the case because you may meet the requirements, but New York in particular is very aggressive about wanting you to prove that that's true. Right. And, and usually it's, you know, you move from New York to Texas or Nevada or Wyoming, someplace where there's no taxes, Florida, right? And, you know, they think that that move may not exactly be genuine. And so we had a client who had moved from California to a no-tax state. And, and he had given an interview in which he said that he, you know, liked waking up in his boat and seeing, you know, California. And, and so we do the audit and I know that the longest running residency audit case in California is, is the Gilbert Hyatt case, which started literally in 1992 and is still ongoing. Wow. You can do the math on how long that one is gone. You can go look it up. It's gone to the Supreme Court three different times. Uh, it is an interesting and fascinating case. Uh, and um, uh, it came about because the FTB literally read about the guy getting a big payout. When our client was going through the residency audit, I said to the partner, and this is my old firm, I said to the partner, I guarantee you that this interview is going to become an issue. And sure enough, we get the preliminary determination back from California. And uh, the FTB says, client was in California during this period because here's this interview published on the right smack dab in the middle of a period where he talks about, you know, being in, waking up in California. So this is all bunk and we want um, seven figures from him. Mm-hmm. I went back and I proved that he had actually given the interview six months earlier and they didn't publish it right away. And so by the time it was published, yes, he had moved. But when he gave it, he was in California. And it's not our fault that the magazine took six months to publish this interview. You could have called me. I could have told you how, how long magazines take to publish. Right. And so... You know, I, I was able to establish that, and and I told the client, you know, listen, that and it was a, that wasn't the only fact. There was a lot of things, but you know, we expect that I, I will be able to negotiate the uh, the FTB down to about half of what they want. You know, you, you do have some exposure, but we're going to negotiate it down to about half. And the FTB came back, and they came down seventy percent. Wow. And so that was a fun phone call. And the client says, so what should I do? And I said, again, a moment of lack of professionalism. <laughs> the first words out of my mouth, are you effing kidding me? Sign the GD check before they change their minds. Right, right. <laughs> I think that up actually a really good point that I'm, I'm sure listeners uh, want to know, but, but I've had the same experience, which is, you know, anytime you're negotiating with tax authorities, whether it's the IRS or the state, you know, you're always balancing these two things like you, you want to get a good result and you want to get it quickly. Right. Because uh, uh, though we've heard about audits that are ongoing and you just uh, talked to us about a, a really long case, most taxpayers, especially if they are business owners or corporations, don't love that uncertainty. They want there to be a period at the end of the sentence, even if it's a little higher. 
but at the same time, they want to pay as little as possible, right? So there's, there, you're always trying to balance these two things. When you are dealing with high net worth people, whether they are Hollywood actors or, you know, the mayor of the town, people that are, um, you know, prominent in their communities in whatever capacity, you also have to balance, you know, certain things are going to be public. If you get a lien, it's, it's going to be published in the courthouse. It could make it into the papers. So you have to kind of balance. It's this extra, extra challenge, right? Like you're trying to negotiate a good deal. You want to have it over as quickly as possible and you want to try to keep it quiet, which ordinarily, I think, kind of circumvents or or puts an end to some of the options that might normally be available. For example, like one of the things you can do is you can say, you know what, we don't agree with you, IRS, let's go to court. (laughs) Which a lawyer friend of mine thought that they could do on the QT and found out that. Well, and that's and that's kind of my point, though, is that I, I actually think it's funny because I think a lot of people would think that the more resources you have as a wealthy individual, the more likely it is that you're going to get a good result because you can fight it. But there's also some real privacy challenges because there is a, you know, the, first of all, the longer something stays out there, even if it is not in court, the more likely it is to become not known. So like in Hollywood, it might end up on a TMZ type type show, you know, it, But it also, once you go to court, it becomes public. So how do you kind of balance that with your clients? Do you have discussions with them where you say, because I know I've had discussions with people about liens and, you know, liens are what they are. You can't stop them. If the IRS is going to, you know, I mean, there are things you can do, but realistically, if you're not going to come to a resolution really quickly, you're going to have to just kind of understand that there's a possibility you're going to be lien. So And then it becomes public, not, you know, public knowledge. So do you have those conversations with clients about if it wasn't, let's say this had come back and you didn't get a 70% resolution, let's say you had only gotten a 20% reduction. Do you say to the client, listen, it's to your best, not necessarily your best tax advantage, but to your best personal advantage to take this deal so that we can have this over with? So it's an interesting um, dynamic. Um, because people hear what they want to hear anyway. Yes. And um, it was a good friend of mine, that wisecrack I made about the tax court case, who uh, got kind of caught up in that. And, um, and, and their client uh, didn't really understand that and, and was angry afterwards, even though they explained to them some of that beforehand mm-hmm. and the risks. Um, I think one thing that anybody should understand no matter where you are on the income spectrum, when the IRS files a lien, you're right. That is public information and you will be besieged by people soliciting your business who are shady and who will lie, outright lie on their promotional materials to get you to sign up with them. Uh, we, we had a client that, um, that wound up getting a lien, not anybody well-known, um, but they wound up uh, getting a lien because of their marital situation. And, and uh, we got the day after that lien, literally the day after that lien went public, we got 37 solicitations, I'm not surprised. 37 solicitations. And we got an average of 20 a day for the next two weeks. Some of it was, was um, a lot of it was duplications, but, but not all of it. And it was just, you were 
buried in this stuff and they were freaking out and we were, you know, holding their hands saying, we told you this was going to happen. You know, you sometimes the, 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 the case that, that my friend had, they really felt that they were correct and that the IRS was wrong. And um, so they said, here's the risks, you know, we're going to go, we can file with tax court and we can go after, you know, the IRS and hold our line, but it'll be out there. But, you know, we'll paint it as we are right and you are wrong and we are entitled, you know, the, the great learned hand comment that everybody likes to quote about minimizing taxes. Mm-hmm. And, and for those who don't know, learned hand was actually the guy's name. Yes. Uh, he's a very well-known judge and I read a lot of his cases in law school. But anyway, um, you know, so you tell clients, here's the risk. If you get, if it's lean, you're going to get all of this promotional mail from, from these very shady firms that are going to lie and tell you you can go to jail or they are going to lie and say the IRS is going to take all of your stuff if you don't send us three grand to represent you. And by the way, once you do, that's the last, you might as well sit in front of your fireplace with $30, $100 bills and burn them because that's about the same effectiveness you're going to have. And the, the things you say in public can come back to bite you. Yes because the FTB definitely reads the papers and they definitely take it and uh, other tax agencies do too. So you have to be careful about what you say. You have to be cognizant that if you say I have a home in Nevada and I love spending all my time there that, well, Nevada is a bad example, but I have a home in, in, you know, Wyoming, uh, <laughs> I think you all know tax states. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania. But yeah, Pennsylvania. And I spend all my time there and they, and they look and say, Hey, well, you said you're a non-resident and that you live in, you know, in Texas, um, maybe we should talk, you know, that, that kind of stuff happens. And it's more likely to happen with you because you're much higher profile. Like you said, everybody likes the perp walk. Amy spent some time working for the, 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 uh, the, uh, attorney general's office, the AG's office when she was in law school at Northwestern, which is funny because I spent time working for the Cook County public defender. So, you know, we are on opposite sides of a lot of issues. Yeah. And which helps us when we write briefs, right? Because she has the prosecutorial funds. And so I give it to her and she pokes holes in it. And I have defense funds and I poke holes in her stuff. So, right. you know, we're a Jackson Brown song, right? Lawyers in love. <laughs> you know, that, that's the thing is that you have to have this conversation. And even if you do, it may go south on you afterwards because it really doesn't sink in until it happens. And, um, and sometimes people know the risk and you sit there and you say, okay, look, this is what the IRS wants. This is what we're going to counter with. Here's what I think will happen. And sometimes it works out like, like my FTB case where they came down far more than I thought they would. And sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they decide F you because they know you don't want the publicity too. So you really have lost a bargaining chip. They know you're up against the wall and all they have to do is go file this and you're going to look bad. And, um, so actually, when you're high net worth and well-known, it works against you in that regard. Mm-hmm. And, and at the end of the day, sometimes what happens is we, we went there, we fought like hell. They're not going to lose or they're not going to back off. So either you write a check or you take them to court. Right. And what happens is they write a check. And sometimes the IRS is wrong. I had a case uh, where the IRS uh, charged interest. On a, on a matter where the IRS agent actually did nothing with the case for 11 and a half months and then sent me an, a statute extension request and got mad when I asked, why are you extending the statute? Why do you need to extend this? Because this was six months before the statute expired. I'm like, why are you extend? Why do you want to extend the statute another year? Right. 
I, I have not, and I, I wrote a letter. I said, I have not heard from you in 11 months. I have made multiple phone calls. You have not returned them. And, um, and I said, by the way, here's a specific statute that says, if it's not the taxpayer's fault, the IRS can't charge interest. And you're charging, you know, four grand of interest on this. You need to take that off. At the very least, you need to take it off because that's improper. And she refused to do so. And, you know, I had to go to her group manager and say, hey, listen, I understand you think we owe money and I'm, I'm not against paying fair share of taxes, but you don't have the right to charge me that. Take it off. You know, and, and I've done that in a few cases where the IRS is, or, or some tax body has wanted to hold the line on something. And um, I had one case where the guy was a restaurant owner, uh, nowhere near a high net worth, but he had a couple of restaurants and the state was a sales tax audit. The state wanted him to pay and they wanted him to pay right away. And I said, you know, if you give my guy 18 months, uh, he can pay this. And they said, we don't do deals over a year. I said, so do an off the books deal, informal, 18 months. Mm-hmm. And they said no. And so I had a meeting with the supervisor and the agent. And I said, you know, if you do this over 18 months, he can pay it. If you do it over a year, we're going to close the doors. And I just very calmly paused. And I said, now I'm going to tax advocate hat. And I'm going to put on my taxpayer hat. And I'm going to remind you that I am also a taxpayer of the state. And you have a duty to me to collect the highest amount of taxes. And if you want to insist on having him close down his business, you are breaching your duty to me because you're going to get 10% on the dollar. And I'm telling you, you have an opportunity to get 90% of the dollar and you have a duty to me to get that 90%. And the supervisor sat there for a moment and he looked at my client and he said, well, you know, your last payment was due last week and you didn't make it. He says, if I give you till next Friday to make the payment, will you? And the guy goes, absolutely, absolutely. Because my client was there, but I told him, don't talk unless, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And so the supervisor looks at me and he says, fine, he makes the payment by next Friday. You got a deal. He doesn't go to hell. <laughs> we walked out and I looked at the client and I said, don't F this up. And he's like, no, 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 I won't. I won't. And he didn't. He actually stuck to it. It's, it's interesting when you're, when you're crafting deals, because sometimes I think everybody thinks that, oh, I shouldn't say everybody. I think sometimes there's an expectation that you're bluffing, right? As the attorney. And um, I have conversations kind of similar to with with the service where you're saying, you know what, this will bankrupt this person or this person cannot do what you're asking them to do. Some of it. And we know this, you know, if you do it long enough, you, you understand there's at some level, there's a game, right? There's a back and forth. But it's poker. Yeah, but sometimes it just is. And when you were talking, it actually it reminded me I had a client who um, had an asset that the IRS wanted sold. Um, the, the, the asset needed to be sold. But the client had made the effort to sell and couldn't. And the, the service came back and they were adamant that the asset needed to be sold. And I finally, I had a conversation with the revenue officer and I said, then take the asset. Like if, if you think you can sell it, <laughs> take it because you know, they're, they're, they're trying. And that was also though, kind of looping back around, that was also an asset that belonged to someone that was in media. And, you know, they didn't want the news to say that the IRS had, you know, seized a home or something to that effect because it's bad press. But at the same time, again, you know, it's the bargaining chip. And, and, I, and I think that kind of goes back to our discussion earlier is that you, you feel like the more resources you have, the easier it would be. But it's not because sometimes those things are 
we did not want to be in the papers. But, you know, normally, if it had been an ordinary taxpayer, that would have been probably one of my first conversations. Like, if you're going to sit here and threaten with me over and over about this asset, you take it because we're trying. And, you know, sometimes when you call that bluff, it works in your favor. But I don't necessarily want the IRS seizing the assets of my, uh, you know, my clients in the media. So it's tough. And I do think that's uh, something that maybe listeners um, aren't aware of because you feel like the more money you have, the more money you have to fight. Well, yeah. And let me tell you something. When I was in law school, uh, back in the days when we were still, you know, chopping into stone tablets, <clears throat> when I was in law school, the... It, Michael Kaufman, who's now the Dean of Loyola, but he, at the time he was a civil procedures professor. And he also worked at a, a firm, Sun and, Sun and Shine, which no longer is around, but he was a securities lawyer over there. He said, listen, clients come and go, don't screw over your fellow attorneys. I have had the joy of having somebody screw me over in litigation who then needed a favor from me. So those are always fun FU letters to write. You should remember that when you were, you know, and I was asking you for a favor that you might need one from me. Mm-hmm. But reputation is everything. Yes. And uh, I had uh, my my prior firm had m- more controversy issues than my current firm does, but we still have them. But at one of my prior firm, um, one of one of the audits of my prior firm, it was an auditor that I had dealt with on an earlier audit. And uh, you know they they walk in and they're smiling and they see me and you know I, look I'm kind of the chatty guy and I I you know, chit chat with them. And we kind of have a good rapport, even when I'm fighting them like tooth and nail. And uh, they like the fact that I treat them with respect, uh, even if I say you're wrong, because some people don't. And, uh, you know, and he was happy to see me. And I had another audit not long after that with a different agent that I had never worked before. And, uh, and so we, you know, she comes in and I get her set up in the conference room. I'm like, you know, here's where you can plug in. Here's a phone you can use. This is a, here's where you get the key to the ladies room. Here's my phone number. I'm going to leave you to yourself. I'm going to bring some documents, but then you're on your own. If you need me, just call. I'll come over unless I'm in a meeting, but otherwise I'll, I'll come over right away. And she looks at me and she says, uh, you know, you've got a good, I, I don't anticipate problems. You have a good reputation. Nice. And I said, I looked at her and I said, when you say you, do you mean, because, you know, I'm a lawyer, do you mean you as in my, the firm I work for or me personally? She said, you personally. I asked around about you and everyone had nothing but good things to say about you. That's awesome. At the IRS office. And I, I kind of felt good the rest of the day. And I came home and I said to Amy, I have a good reputation at the IRS. And, you know, it was important to me because when you're talking about saying stuff to the agent, if you have a reputation for being somebody who's not a bullshitter, who's serious, straightforward, respectful, all of those things, and you say, my client can't sell that, it carries a lot more weight than if you have your reputation. And I've heard not specific names, but you know there are those people out there because agents talk. There are people out there who are shysters, who lie, cheat, steal, who will say things and it's not true. And the agents know walking in, Joe Blow is a bullshitter. And if he tells you the client can't sell it, he's probably bullshitting. Right. Whereas they'll walk in and I'll say, Greg Zabiolet's a straight shooter. And if he tells you the client can't sell it, the client can't sell it. And it really uh, is something I think a lot of people overlook is your reputation gets around. Right. Amy went to Northwestern. I went to Loyola. 
uh, a lot of people that she went to law school with went on to careers in other cities. Loyola is much more of a local school. And so we would we had an office on uh, LaSalle in Chicago for a while, and we would walk over to the courthouse and I would see people and they'd be like, hey, Greg, how you doing? Hey, Greg, how you doing? And she would look at me like, you know, everybody in this town. <laughs> and it's like, well, I went to law school with these people. Mm-hmm. And so I still see them, you know, and by the way, I also now have a reputation because I went to law school and somebody goes to work at Henshaw, then I, they see my name come across. I'll say, Hey, Oh, I went to law school with him. He's a good guy. That actually kind of, I think goes back very, very nicely to what you said at the the top of the program about referrals, because kind of to, to bring the whole um, episode full circle, you know, when you, as a taxpayer, when you're looking for resolutions, whether it's planning, controversy, compliance, you know, you, you wonder, how do I find the right fit? And one of the things that you had said at the top of the program is that, you know, most of your business comes from referrals. I think that that also goes back to reputation. You know, as a tax professional, you, you always want to you want to be those things that you said. You want to be the the straight shooter. You want to be the person that treats people with respect and clients pick up on that too. And so if you're looking for someone to uh, to represent you, you know, ask questions, ask who do you, you know, who do you use? Who do you like? Uh, do, you, do you find them nice? It's not always the person, as you mentioned, with the coolest website or the biggest billboard. Like it, oh God, no. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. often the person that, you know, your your neighbor uses or your colleague uses that's willing to say, you know what, these people are really kind or these people will go out of their way to help you. Like that's what matters. Yeah. And you know, I've it's always, I think every lawyer who's had this experience, I've had this experience where somebody who's been on the other side refers business to you. You know, it's always been fun. I actually had an IRS agent call me a few years ago because we had had this, you know, it again, it wasn't personally contentious, but we were arguing over the facts. And again, you know, reputation, right? I get a phone call from a revenue agent and I'm like, hi. And I'm like, I thought our matter was resolved. She goes, oh yeah, it's totally resolved. But I have this other, other professional telling me this, you know, this, this, and this. And I'm kind of wondering if they're being truthful with me. And since you're out there in practice, what do you think? <laughs> I had a very similar experience on the FBAR side, actually. So yeah. And I'm like, oh, like, okay, well, here's, I think they're full of crap. I did not use crap. I used a stronger word. And uh, it was just kind of one of those head scratcher moments. But, you know, I've also had, I've also had clients refer to me, uh, you know, they'll come in, they'll say, oh, so-and-so referred to me. And I'm like, who the hell is so-and-so? Well, so-and-so turns out to be some guy who's a lurker on a listserv in which I was, you know, actively participating. And he's seen me give all this advice over the years. And he said, this guy knows what he's talking about you know, uh, and you should go see him. I had never met this person. I still to this day had never met this person, but he referred a client to me. You know, it's, it's really weird where that stuff comes from or, or, or how you get it, right. but you get it from sources you don't always expect. Exactly. Well, and so being professional and, and knowledgeable. It matters. <laughs> if people are listening now and they wanted to find you um, either for um, representation or, or advice, how would you, how would they find you either on social or the web? Where would you send them? Well, I have a, a lovely <laughs> Twitter presence, uh, Zabilet on taxes as, as, as you can follow me there if you want to. But, um, 
I work at a firm called Singer Burke. So you, Singer Burke is uh, S-I-N-G-E-R-B-U-R-K-E. And uh, you pull up singerburke.com and just call the main phone number. And, and uh, normally you can ask for me. Uh, I think we do have a directory. And my first name, first initial, last name, Jesus Violet at Singer Burke is my email. So if somebody wants to, they can always send an email. And uh, those are probably the two best. And of course, LinkedIn, because like everybody else, I'm on the big advertising platform that is LinkedIn. And I'll be sure to put those links um, in the show notes for folks. That'd be great. Um, because, you know, Zabilet is not the easiest name to spell. Right. Z is in zebra, B is in boy, Y, L, U, T is in Thomas. It's even more fun to try and pronounce. I've been, I've got some practice at it, so I'm good. Yeah, I practiced a little <laughs> earlier, so <laughs> I can attest. Well, again, thanks. I always tell people it rhymes with the pilot, so it's easy to remember. Well, again, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I I think that the information that you um, put out there, again, a lot of these personal experiences are things that folks understand and can relate to, which is kind of uh, part of the struggle in understanding compliance work. So thanks very much. Oh, this has been an absolute pleasure and a lot of fun. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app. So you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.